Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So I was going to um, wrap up this uh, this fascicle of Dogen's we're studying uh, this week, but then as I started reading it, I, I just fell in love with it again. So um, uh, I thought we could jump into uh, a wonderful section, which is section 17. <clears throat> and hopefully you can share a copy with somebody close to you. Because it would be good to follow along tonight. And if you have a copy all to yourself, share it with somebody. What's that? Oh, are are there not sections? What's that? You only have 15 and 16. I don't know what page number it's on. It starts, uh, it starts with the sentence, mountains have been the abode of great sages. <clears throat> uh, mountains have been the abode of great sages. 162? Some of you have, are, have it memorized, so it's no problem. It's, a, it's actually exciting for me. I don't know if I mentioned this, but in two weeks, at this time, I'm, I'm going to be visiting the, the monastery where Dogen wrote this. And um, in 1243, uh, this monastery is still functioning. And um, actually, one of the practices they have at this monastery is they take the columns that hold up the monastery and every year they move them one inch. Just they pick a column and they move it an inch. Uh, so actually, over you know 700 years, the whole monastery's moved, uh, which is I think a beautiful practice. We should do this with our houses. You should just take you know one joist or whatever, and you just move it a centimeter. Um, and, and this is just part of the impermanence practice. So, um, I just want, a few people who are here um, haven't been here for the past few weeks, so I'll, I'll just sum up what, what we've been covering so far. So, so this text is written in the 13th century, uh, just outside Kyoto, which at the time was the capital of Japan. The, um, 
Dogen was quite unhappy with what had been happening with the imperial class and the imperial family. Um, politics were a mess. Um, Dogen couldn't stand city life anymore, and all he wanted to do was go out uh, into uh, rural Japan and just practice, and practice in the natural world. But, but not alone. He want, he, he, it wasn't a kind of romantic, solitary move. It was rather a, a move to go practice with others, um, but in a setting that wasn't embroiled in the, the heat of politics at the time. Does anybody feel this way? <laughs> um, Dogen was writing for monks, um, and um, his writings really didn't become popular uh, until this century, primarily in uh, the West, um, which is really quite interesting. And, and I think as we're studying this text, I think you can feel how modern his attitude is. Um, so for the first few weeks, we covered Dogen's biography. Uh, we covered his teachings of body and mind drop away. So that's a really important teaching of Dogen at the beginning, this, uh, where he was in a monastery in China and someone next to him was falling asleep. And the teacher said to that person, drop away body and mind. And when Dogen heard this, and I love that story because the teaching wasn't directly to Dogen, mm-hmm. which is a reminder for all of us to pay attention everything going on in the room. Um, when this uh, happened, Dogen really had this experience, this insight into what it means for body and mind to drop away. Now, this doesn't mean to the untrained um, uh, mind that your body and mind drop away. It means that your idea of body and mind fall away. And we see this so much in practice, is when people have this idea of their mind that they're working with, and they never work through their idea about what they're working through. And you see this mostly in the yoga community, where we're working on the body, working on the body, and then we don't see the frame through which we're looking at the body. And then the practice becomes a kind of physical practice empty of the spirit, uh, of, of its potential, to really allow us to see to see into our lives. Um, so this is Dogen's idea of body and mind drop away. Your idea of what you think you're doing is always wrong. It always misses the point. Uh, then this idea we covered the week after of practice realization. That practice is realization. And that realization is practice. So Dogen has this idea that, you know, practicing towards some great realization actually gets in the way both of practice and realization. Practicing towards enlightenment. And those of you who were here last year for the Lotus Sutra, you can hear that in the background. It's the phantom city. This idea that practicing to get enlightenment uh, completely misses the fact that you're already enlightened. Is Dogen's you know radical idea that you're awake and interconnected, and you practice because of your gratefulness that you're here. You got this life, so what what are you going to do with it? And this is especially true for those of us that have tried shopping. <laughs> you know, especially shopping for others. Has anyone done this before? You know, oh that one's not working. I'll just move her over there. Find him. <laughs> let that one go you know 
as if you're going to get happy. So Dogen's idea that practice, your practice is enlightenment. It's the functioning of awakening. And that awakening is practice. Then he turns this whole thing uh, towards this poem that inspired him about how mountains and rivers are the long, broad tongue of the Buddha. Do you remember this? So this Chinese poem by Su Dong Po about how all night he listens to a river and realizes the river are the, the river is the teaching of the Buddha. And that if you really listen to rivers, that's the teaching of the Buddha. And then so Dogen names his essay that we're studying, Mountains and River Sutra, as a kind of uh, re-sculpting of the term sutra. That instead of thinking it's a sutra, a text on mountains and rivers, he's saying that the mountains and rivers are, are the sutra. Um, last couple weeks we talked about how, you know, when you really go deep into your philosophy about anything, it always ends in, in poetry. Uh, a couple weeks ago we wrote some poems together, which is great. And then I purposely didn't ask you to read them out loud, uh, but hopefully you've kept up the, up the practice. Um, so... Let, let, me, let me just read along, read, and you can just follow along, and, and then we'll break it down a little bit. So, this is section 17. Uh, and if you don't have a, pa- you know, a, a, a paper, just close your eyes and, 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 you know, inhale it. Mountains have been the abode of great sages from the limitless past to the limitless present. Wise people and sages all have mountains as their inner chamber, as their body and mind. Because of wise people and sages, mountains appear. You may think that in mountains many wise people and great sages are assembled, but after entering the mountains, not a single person meets another. There's just the activity of the mountains. There's, remember, this, this is just an echo of what he said about water. Now he's bringing back to mountains. So really, you're in the mountains, and you're not actually meeting somebody else. That's just the mountain meeting more mountain. So that all human beings in the mountains are actually just the functioning of the, of the mountains. There's just the activity of the mountains. There's no trace of anyone having entered the mountains. When you see mountains from the ordinary world, and when you meet mountains wall in mountains, the mountains head and eye are viewed quite differently. Your idea or view of mountains not flowing is not the same as the view of dragons and fish. Humans and heavenly beings have attained a position concerning their own worlds, which other beings either doubt or do not doubt. Do you like how he's like, he can't just say that fish doubt whether they're in the mountains because then he would come to a final view. So fish probably doubt, or maybe they don't. (laughs) Human and heavenly beings have attained a position concerning their own worlds which other beings either doubt or do not doubt. You should not just remain bewildered and skeptical when you hear the words mountains flow, but together with Buddha ancestors you should study these words. When you take one view, you see mountains flowing. 
When you take another view, mountains are not flowing. One time mountains are flowing, another time they're not flowing. If you do not fully understand this, you do not understand the true Dharma wheel of the Tathagata. So the Tathagata is, you know, the Buddha or any of his followers. Tathagata just means one who's, who's gone forth. An ancient Buddha said, If you do not wish to incur the cause for unceasing hell, do not slander the true Dharma wheel of the Tathagata. A little overstated, maybe. You should carve these words on your skin. Is the, is the punchline. You should carve these words on your skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, on your body, mind, and environment, on emptiness and on form. They are already carved on trees and rocks, on fields and villages. So, um, so basically, he's talking here about tattoos. <laughs> Why do uh, presidents and pro- why are presidents and prime ministers the only people who don't have tattoos? When you go into a yoga class, it's mostly tattooed. And um, traditionally, uh, there is a practice called vinyasa yoga. Have you heard about this before? <laughs> now, basically, sweating is called vinyasa yoga. You just sweat and jump back on your mat into downward dog. Um, but traditionally, um, Patabi Joyce used to say that traditionally uh, there was a practice, uh, a, t- a tantra practice called vinyasa. This is where the word comes from. So it's two words, V, which is an intensifier, and nyasa. And nyasa was this practice where you would take something important to you and you would find some concise way of framing it. So usually you would make it a mantra. And then you would... T- so, so let's say you have a deep insight. Right? You just have an experience in your life where you really have insight into something and you don't want to forget. It's something you really don't want to forget. So, so you, 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 you create a, a, a sentence or a mantra. And then you take the mantra and you put it inside your body. So maybe you put one in your elbow, you put one in your heart, you put one in your knee, and you put these mantras all over your body. And then, uh, when you need them, you take your breath, and you take your breath down to that mantra. And then you let that mantra open up uh, and support you in that situation. So this is uh, the actual original meaning of this idea of vinyasa yoga was it, it was the yoking of your awareness with these mantras, these insights that you've placed throughout your body. So maybe one of the reasons why everyone is getting tattooed is because they're something important they want to remember. And instead of doing uh, the inner nyasa practice, they do the outer nyasa practice. And that's okay. I don't have any yet. Good grants going away for a year, so I was getting influenced. <laughs> um, but actually, uh, you know, whether you have literal tattoos or not, we're all tattooed. You're you're carved out by your experiences. You're carved uh, by what you're committed to, 
You're carved by who you spend time with. You're carved by your parents. You're carved by uh, your environment. You're carved by what you're scared of. I mean, how, how many of our personalities uh, are also um, constructed around really, really basic loves and basic fears? You know, how often do we have a realization that, you know, oh, this thing I was doing because I had this idea about it, I was really doing just because I was frightened of something else. All the time. You know, we, we might see this in big and in small ways. Um, we have carvings in our flesh, you know. Does anybody look in the mirror? Do you ever wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, oh, God. <laughs> Um, there, there's actually a story you know I, I actually don't remember it I think it was Lincoln well I don't remember the story anyway. there, there's, a, there's an interesting story about like I think it's Abraham Lincoln or, where he was, a, he, he was trying to find a secretary or an administrator and so he was interviewing people and he'd look at their resume and uh, and then uh, he would say, you know, no, no, no. And then and then the person who was in doing the interviews with him said, you know, like, why didn't you, you know, choose that person? And he would say he he had this great line, something about how it's it's about their face. He couldn't see if their experience he couldn't see their experience in their face. Uh, someone might want to want to look up that story <laughs> for next week. It's it's a really good one. I just botched it. Um, um, yeah, our our face really shows what's important to us. You know, they have the saying: "You get the face you deserve." <laughs> what what you think about and what you worry about is is uh, celebrated. It's carved into your face. Um, and, and this is a lot like mountains, right? Sometimes you think your body is like a mountain. Uh, and then you realize that actually your life is, is like a, a water. And it just flows through your face. And it carves your face. Just like a river carves out, out a mountain. And it's not just that your experience has carved out your face. But that your life is carving out your face. Uh, all the time. And this is identical to the idea of the samskaras, these grooves we talked about, uh, I think, when we were studying the Yoga Sutra. Uh, this idea that every, every action you do is carving your life. Putting it back together, carving it up, making new grooves. Um, so Dogen uh, want, wants you to, to carve what's true uh, in your life into your life. And why not? It's being carved anyways. And um, the way I would interpret that is, is to, to stop ignoring what your life really is. You see, so this is because Dogen is saying you're not practicing or doing something with your life like a self-improvement project. Like, I'm doing something with my life to get somewhere. Dogen thinks this is exactly the problem. But what if you do with your life something that allows you, instead of enlightenment, to actually appreciate your life? 
how, how do we do this? Um, well, I think one way we do this is, is we examine our life really closely, uh, even where it's dense. And I don't know about you, but I have to do this with my life all the time. Where, where you just see that there's these places where you're just dense. Does anybody have this? <laughs> yeah, it's like no matter how many times you uh, think you've learned, you have some operating story in the background um, that you can't see because it's the operating story. So that you convince yourself you can see it. But it's not true. It's so dense. It's the mountain. Um, Sometimes our habits look like they're flowing, like Dogen saying mountains flow, and sometimes they don't. From one view, things flow, and from another view, uh, my life just isn't flowing. You know, when, when I was learning how to give Dharma talks, uh, one piece of advice I got is when, when you give a talk and you're writing the talk or getting ideas for the talk during the day, um, just talk to what you need. <laughs> so all day today, I just felt dense. So when I was reading the sutra tonight, I was like, oh, just... Why do we have ways of talking or ways of seeing or ways of being that are so deeply tattooed that we can't even see that they're tattooed? So... Um, So I wrote a poem. <laughs> Here's how it goes. What I think of as I, that's I like the, do you know that letter? What I think of as I is only a word in March, in spring, in the evening with you. Part two. I fall asleep and wake up at least twice every day. That's it. They're not particularly good poems. <laughs> but I, I'm in a habit of just reading whatever I write. <laughs> um, the, the point of the poem, though, is that every Tuesday, I sit here and I say to you that the I is an illusion. We notice this? Some of you have been hanging around here years. <laughs> and uh, does anybody know Sophia? Who, she's, act, she's actually at a monastery now. And uh, people come here, they end up quitting their jobs and moving to monasteries. It's really great. We're going to be shut down soon by the you know people who monitor the gross national product. <laughs> So she's doing this art that we found. So we've actually been recording everything we do at Center of Gravity since 2005. So she found the archive. So she's she's archiving everything right now. And she, she said, you guys just talk about these, the same thing over and over. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, every night I say, you know, that the self, the I, is just an illusion um, so today, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, what do you make of that? 
Like, you hear that every week, and what are you doing about it? Um, is it something you just believe in now, because it's Buddhist theory? Uh, or is it something really that is shaking you a little bit? And at the same time, in that shaking of how you're doing your life, giving you a little more integrity. Uh, something a little deeper to rely on than just this story you have about how you're going to make a life. Um, what are you doing with this teaching? Um, now Dogen keeps going. Although mountains belong to the nation, mountains belong to the people who love them. Isn't that so nice? We could say about anything, parks, trees, everything dense, music. Although mountains belong to the nation, mountains belong to the people who love them. When mountains love their master, that's such a bad translation. Um, ma it's not really master, it's more like the person taking care of the mountains. Someone steward. who cares. Steward. When mountains love their steward, such a virtuous sage or wise person enters the mountains. Right? It's not that, oh, I love these mountains, I'm going to go enter the mountains. You know, It's rather that when you really feel that you love the mountains, they enter you. From their side, not from your side. Since mountains belong to the sages and wise people living there, trees and rocks become abundant, and birds and animals are inspired. This is so because sages and wise people extend their virtue. You should know it as a fact that mountains are fond of wise people and sages. Many rulers have visited mountains to pay homage to wise people, or to ask for instruction from great sages. These have been important events in the past and present. At such times, these rulers treated the sages as teachers, disregarding the protocol of the usual world. The imperial power has no authority over wise people in the mountains. Isn't that nice? Stephen Harper has no authority <laughs> over wise people in the mountains. Mountains are apart from the human world. At the time the Yellow Emperor visited Mount Kongdong to pay homage to Wang Cheng, he visited on his knees, touched his forehead to the ground, and asked for instruction. When Shakyamuni Buddha left his father's palace and entered the mountains, his father the king did not resent the mountains, nor was he suspicious of those who taught the prince in the mountains. The twelve years of Shakyamuni Buddha's practice of the way were mostly spent in the mountains and his attainment of the way occurred in the mountains. Thus, even his father, a wheel-turning king, did not wield authority over the mountains. You should know that mountains are not the realm of human beings, nor the realm of heavenly beings. Don't view mountains from the scale of human thought. If you do not judge mountains flowing by the human understanding of flowing, you will not doubt mountains flowing and not flowing. It's triple negative. Mm -hmm. 
quadruple negative. Should we try that one again? If you do not judge mountains flowing by the human understanding of flowing, you will not doubt mountains flowing and not flowing. On the other hand, this is actually my favorite line in this whole section. On the other hand, from ancient times, wise people and sages have often lived near water. Don't we know this? Uh, And and this is kind of interesting because Dogen's never been using water as water. And now he's kind of just using water as water again. And saying, on the other hand, from ancient times, wise people and sages have often lived near water. When they live near water, they catch fish, they catch human beings, and they catch the way, the Tao, the way. Isn't that nice? On the other hand, from ancient times, so wise people and sages, that's you. So if you're going to live a life that's compassionate, that's creative, uh, that's not built on something that's going to crack, every time your life changes, then you're building a life on water. There's a theologian named Don Cupid, and um, he has this wonderful idea where he talks about the um, uh, um, pond skaters. Do you know those insects called Mm -hmm. pond skaters? Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was in Woodstock, New York in the summer, there was a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Um, They're these uh, bugs that have really long legs, and they can walk along the water. And it's a very interesting... um, uh, So he uses this term, actually, to develop a whole theology about how we need to move like a pond skater. A pond skater senses the vibration of the water and then moves horizontally to that place. Mm -hmm. And he uses this as, as an idea, kind of like sometimes how I like to talk about horizontal transcendence, to say that you know, maybe a new theology or a new way we think about religious life is not this way, uh, but rather to live like the pond skater, where your ground is impermanence. And what if we could do this a little more in our life? We learned, we learn all the time to make things stable and to have RRSPs and good investments and, you know, linear relationships and linear careers and 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 when those things fall apart it's so painful and it's not painful because it's those things falling apart it's painful just because it's impermanent you know i i i was saying to mike earlier that you know so many people who come and practice come when they get sick. Um, And then, uh, it's so interesting that some people get sick and it really opens them deeply to practice. You see them practice, there's a saying in Zen, like their hair's on fire. Which is a joke, because in Zen no one has hair. (laughs) Um, But then it's really interesting that there's some people where it just changes their life. And, and then they go deep and, and they become religious. They, they live in a religious way. And then, 
I was saying that there's also people who come and they have this attitude and then as soon as they get better, they're gone. Back to the old way again. And, and I always wonder about how that happens. You know? so, so what is it in our life that we uh, stop paying attention to and get comfortable and then our practice dies out? Where we lose that spirit of practice that's constantly opening doors. And I think what it is, is that part of our mind that's always seeking permanence. So then we make up a story about what practices. Okay, the Dharma is this. Yoga is this. And then something, some spirit in our practice just kind of dies. Because we have a new, a new idea of it. But, Dogen's saying, but wise people, they live by the river. They always live by water. So if you're a literalist, you're just like, oh, well, I guess I should go move to... You know, live closer to the Don River, you know. Uh, why did I move to Toronto? I had such a good place on the ocean. You know? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying that, just think about it. In the past, wise people and sages, why, why are they wise? Do you know someone in your life who is really wise? Who's someone you would turn to when things get hard? They're probably someone who lives near close to water. In other words, they live close to the flow. They live close to impermanence. Little closer to impermanence. Mm -hmm. So that when things change for you, it's okay for them. And you can feel that in them. Um, And when they live near water, and this is the best line, when they live near water, they catch fish. That's a joke. They catch fish. And they catch human beings. Because when you live near close to water, then you start to see all the people who, whose lives are moving in the direction of stability. And I mean the superficial kind of stability. And then you can catch them, because you live near close to water. So wise sages who live close to water, they're doing a great social service of being able to know how to live with impermanence so that they can catch other human beings when they fall. And I think I used to think about this when I was practicing as a psychotherapist. I used to think that psychotherapy was just this net that caught the the byproduct of capitalism. So that all the people who just couldn't produce and consume at this hyper level that we produce and consume who fall, they that's where they get caught. But it's all also not true. Because it's the people who can afford psychotherapy also. You know, they can afford, I'm going to fall in this net over here. Uh, this net, I like the Young and St. Clair net, you know, or I'm going to fall in the Rosedale net, you know. It's like, and this happens in therapy, right? It's like, you know, the therapists who live in wealthier neighborhoods do better. You know? uh, but really, the Dharma is the net. The Dharma is the net, and it, and, and it's, and, and it catches you when you fall. Um, and when they live near water, they catch fish, they catch human beings, and then this great last line, and they catch the way. They catch the spirit. Um, so I, I think just coming here and practicing is really just a way of remembering what's important 
and getting a little close to the water as much as possible. So, I would like to do a little partner exercise before we have a conversation about this. So, what I'd like you to do is I want you to sit with somebody face to face, just so you can take in their face, see how it's tattooed. Uh, and maybe just spend like half a minute just looking at each other's face. It's really hard to let someone see your face. Usually we put on a social face. <laughs> and then the social face masks the tattoo. Which the tattoo is also water. It's not, it's flowing all the time. So like if I sat with Lori, my face wouldn't, exactly be the same face if I sat with Cassandra because our faces tune in to one another. So just let your face do that. And then uh, just share with each other uh, what th this question is what do you want to pay attention to this week? So, so easy. And, and just share with them uh, what, what do I want to pay attention to this week? And, and just watch where your mind goes. And just be honest. What do I really want to pay attention to this week? And the other person doesn't give you any feedback. Just takes in your face. And then um, uh, I'll ring the bell and then we'll switch. And maybe we'll spend about uh, three or four minutes talking. Then we'll switch. And then um, the other person will talk. Okay? Um, now... I would like you to choose somebody that you don't know as well. So if you came here with someone and you're all freaked out now because you have to actually talk to another human being, another citizen. And in order to decide who goes first, just figure out uh, whose birthday comes first. Okay? So let's give it a try. been more of a workshop than probably um, it would have been interesting to split that up into two exercises so the first one would just be like really to, to see another person's face um, and the tattoos um, and, and then to let someone see your face and all the tattoos all the mountains and all the rivers it's interesting because your, fa your, your, your face, your hair, your mouth, your muscles are all made from minerals from mountains. And um, your life is, is carving them all the time. So Dogen's not writing about some inert world lying over there. Uh, he's, he's writing about your life. Um, but it's not in code language. It's just he's trying not to be in cliché. So instead of saying impermanence, he's talking about uh, being carved up. And I don't know about you, but that's more what it feels like. You just say to someone, oh, things are impermanent. <laughs> Great. You want to smoke a joint now? <laughs> 
So many of you started nodding. <laughs> Save that for the potluck. <laughs> so what, what was it like uh, sh- sharing with your partner? What, what was the exercise like? Jordan? It was so lovely to really look at someone's face. Uh-huh. And I sort of had these interchanging feelings of really feeling this like openness and this just the, the exercise was there to really allow you to really look at someone's face uh-huh. and then to also be looked at yeah. in a very open way it's just so lovely yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I found it kind of arresting in a really really lovely way um because it's kind of funny, you know, was talking about carving things up, and <clears throat> if you do it in other social contexts and stuff, people would obviously get uncomfortable, and, you know, in the right, in the wrong place, you'd have, be it, you know, the gender things come into play, and, and someone thinks they're being looked at, or whatever it's to be, but, but here, the, it, it, all that's kind of disarmed, yeah. and you just get to look at the other person, and after that initial moment of, you know, maybe a perception of, of yourself, or whatever. Suddenly, you, you're aware that you're, you're looking into this person's uh, everything they've brought with them, and until that point, this life history, this experience, these years of tall tales, and, and everything that's come about, and it's just I don't know. It was it was it was really I, I found myself having awe, and yeah, I was just really taken back by it. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm. Thank you. Someone else? I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like really it's such a privilege to like see someone's face and have them see yours and especially when there's like a few people like that in our lives that you can do that with honestly. Mm-hmm. But I hate it from the bottom of my heart every time that you make us do it. I just that's so And it's been years you've been doing this. Yeah, it's all recorded. And then you walk around and then You know, I used to teach, you know, doctors a lot, and every summer I went to Cape Cod and I would do this week-long course for physicians and people who wanted to learn about mindfulness practice. And so I used to get them to do this. And it was so hard. And and the tended to be that the more professional people were, the, the more difficult it was for them really to take in each other's face. So I had them really... So I, I would just extend the time, 20 minutes. <laughs> and then, so on the last day, what I did was... Um, 
because they hated me by then. So. <laughs> and the last day, what I did was I had them at lunchtime. We ate our food in the room, and I had them. Um, they used the same partner all week, and then I had them feed each other the lunch. So you would sit with your partner and you would point at what you want, and they would bring you the food. And it was really beautiful, actually. It was really amazing. Um, we just we 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 avoid intimacy like crazy. So today I, I I had this experience because it's my I have a younger sister some of you know and it was her birthday today she's a chef so I surprised her at work and I brought her some tulips and then when I handed them to her like there was so much going on in the kitchen and she really looked at me you know? and I felt like I was it was my birthday and I was getting the gift <laughs> it was so nice the the way she looked at me and and so I think we just so often are doing this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I experienced almost a... I guess I get engaged. It's, it was difficult for me to just keep a face and mm-hmm. just watch it. And um, it's almost a, a feeling of um, being sucked into that therapist's face. Mm-hmm. Not in a kind of attachment mm-hmm. or not seeing it but almost just like really being merged. And, and that fear of being merged, too, mm-hmm. um, quite profound, actually. Yeah. So that makes you stop it. Yeah, and it. yeah you could catch a human being. You <laughs> 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 I was going to say you can catch fish, you can catch human beings, and you could even catch the way. The way is a translation of the word Tao, which is a Chinese word. You always hear the Tao of some, the Tao of Poo or whatever. But the word actually just means, it just means a road. Or it's the, it's the Chinese word for the Sanskrit word Marga, which means path. So um, when you live close to the moment-to-moment changes, uh, even in the face, uh, you might catch the path. Might not. <laughs> she might catch the path. So somebody else, maybe from this side of the room here. Well, it's funny because if you make, and Kate would know this, if you make cream cheese by straining yogurt using a net, you lose the way. That's a whole other partner exercise. (laughs) Mike, then Carmen. Um, Mostly, I think faces have these two sides, and often, I think the the more I can see a face, the more distinct those two sides seem. Hmm. And um, I really noticed um, uh, during the New Year's retreat, because I thought, I wasn't going to punish myself by sitting on a cushion over and over. I sat in the back of a chair. Mm-hmm. And I could notice how everyone is like this, this. You know? Everyone has a lean. Mm-hmm. And every, mostly people have a lean to their faces. 
And they kind of give you that one side, like this is this is this is the side, like look over here. Mm -hmm. And the other side, it's like the presentable side, my bouquet side. And then the other side is like the side of the face that holds the secret. Like this is the thing that I can't tell you but I want you to know. Or I don't know that I want you to know anymore. Or can you look at me long enough to see that I have this thing over here? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and the two the two sides of the face seem like they're like there's a dialogue already happening there, mm -hmm. and then and then it enters into um, that other dialogue with the other face. Yeah. But it feels like the face is um, showing and not showing at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Carmen. Um. A little bit of an extension here. Um, I noticed that um, that that what I was feeling and what I was experiencing in the sort of moment of looking mm -hmm. was kind of coming back at me. Mm -hmm. um, the projection and the empathy and the, you know there was the a moment of kindness and I saw a kind person back and yeah. that mirroring aspect of mm -hmm. it was very mm -hmm. apparent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's important to feel, that mm -hmm. mirroring. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not just what you want to see, it's but how, how you're changed. Yeah, and that, that you have some control over some of all of this too, yeah. because Practicing kindness and practicing this wisdom that yeah. we learn uh, does get delivered. Sure. Uh, with our face, with yeah. our body, with yeah. our words. Yeah, there are all kinds of ways we can control. We can give our face, mm -hmm. and you know, also sometimes some of us maybe we grew up in environments where affection wasn't shared so freely. So what we learn to do with our face is withdraw, actually. Mm -hmm. So someone's talking and they're sharing, mm -hmm. and you're just... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes for a good professional. And <laughs> it's very professional. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so often the so whole issue of how we seek genuine relationships mm -hmm. Meaningful relationship. Yeah. What does that mean? Really, is that this face being unarmed, unpretentious, yeah, unguarded, yeah, genuine, like mountains, like mountains, flowing, yeah. Um, so, uh, I thought we could end with a poem, and then we'll chant. Um, this is a, a, from a poet named Jane Hirschfield. Um, Jane, uh, um, uh, by the way, Jane Hirschfield's a poet. Many of you know her poetry, but you also might not know that she's also an important translator of Dogen. So she uh, helped translate the, what we're reading, actually, behind the scenes. And, um, and uh, Dogen's 
this essay appears in a lot of Jane Hirschfield's poems, uh, including this one. Uh, the name of this poem is uh, When Your Life Looks Back. Oh, and it's long. <laughs> when your life looks back, as it will at itself, at you, what will it say? Inch of colored ribbon cut from the spool. Flame curl blue consuming the log it flares from. Bay leaf, oak leaf, cricket, one among many. Your life will carry you as it did always, with ten fingers and both palms, with horizontal ribs and an upright spine, with its filling and emptying heart that wanted only your own heart, emptying, filled in return. You gave it. What else could you do? Immersed in air or in water, immersed in hunger or anger, curious, even when bored, longing, even when running away. What will happen next? The question hinged in your knees, your ankles, and in the breaths, even of weeping. Strongest of magnets, the future, impartial, drew you in. Whatever direction you turned toward was face to face. No back of the world existed. No unseen corner, no test, no other earth to prepare for. This, your life had said, its only pronoun. Here, your life had said, its only house. Let, your life had said, its only order. And did you have a choice in this? You did. Sleeping and waking, the horses around you, the mountains around you, the buildings with their tall hydraulic shafts, those of your own kind around you. A few times you stood on your head. A few times you chose not to be frightened. A few times you held another beyond any measure. A few times you found yourself held beyond any measure. Mortal, your life will say, as if tasting something delicious, as if in envy, your immortal life will say this as it's leaving. to them. 
The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. So we'll stand up. with infinite compassion illuminate this endless field. May Anne Hutchinson, Teresa Hibbert, Andrea Kirsch, Scott Beveridge, Naomi Halliday, John Calderhead, Tracy Carroll, Saga Honga, Phil Holboom, Dave Johnson, Bill Hume, Derek McCormick, Find healing and peace at this time of illness. For our great abiding friends and Dharma brothers and sisters, James Hillman, Jenna Morrison, Anthony Cooper, Rita Anderson, Chris Blahos, Jack Layton, Lynn St. John, Brad Dixon, Scott Walker, Brent Carroll, Sophia Borella, Vaclav Havel, Christopher Hitchens, Joseph Donko, Miguel, Manisha and Heiko's baby girl, John Panagatka, Jamie Burnett, Scott Waterworth, Mary Clement, Whitney Houston, Sybil Taylor, Bob Davis, find healing and peace who are passing from this world, they have taken a great leap. The light of this world has faded for them. They have gone into a vast silence. They are borne away by the great ocean of birth and death. May they, together with all beings, realize the end of suffering and the complete unfolding of their Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander life. Do not squander life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. 
Thank you very much for being here. Uh, please don't forget the um, donation box on the way out. Also, next week is a potluck. So, uh, especially shy people, please bring food and stay, and uh, we can eat together. It's an old Jewish trick for building community. <laughs>